take your Bibles and open it with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Well, picking up from last week in chapter 2, where we focused on, if you recall, how Paul was speaking about his ministry. And he was saying that life-changing preaching, it must have the right message. What's that message? It's Christ and Christ crucified. The life-changing preaching, it must use the same or the right means. What are the means? Some power and demonstration, he says, of the Spirit. The true preaching must be spirit-filled, spirit-moved. So he not only preached Christ, but he relied upon the Spirit to have the manifestation, the effect, to do the third point, which is to leave the right mark. So not only are you preaching the right message, using the right means, but it leaves the right mark upon the hearer so that your faith is no longer on men, but your faith now is on the power of God. Why? Because you have seen this Christ. The Spirit has opened your eyes to this Christ, and now you are relying fully upon this Christ. Your power now, the mark, that true changing that the Word does upon the individual is that it increases your faith to rely fully and even more truly upon this Lord who's opened your eyes. And obviously he's saying this in the context of the Corinthians who loved wisdom. They loved worldly wisdom. They loved philosophy. They loved ideologies of the world. They loved all those things. He's saying, yes, I know that your ear is gravitating toward these things. But Paul's saying here, be grounded in true wisdom. Which now brings us now, what role does wisdom play? What role does wisdom play? A couple of weeks ago, as, as many, many of you know, <clears throat> we went to Utah for Johnny and Tori's wedding. And we got a chance to see a couple things in Utah before the wedding. And one of the things we visited was the planetarium. I think it's Clark's Planetarium in Salt Lake City. And it's basically, if you've been to Griffith Observatory, something similar to that, where you get to see all these intricacies of outer space and NASA and all these things. It's, it's pretty cool. It's three levels, and the kids just ate it up. Um, one of the things we did while we were there is inside that planetarium, they had a full screen that was on the entire ceiling of the room. And so basically you were like in movie theater seats and you were reclined and you can basically see the entire screen on the ceiling. It was like a globe you're looking at. And it was a pretty cool experience. You just saw everything. And the, the movie that we saw during that time was about the mission to Mars that eventually people want to do. And, and also the International Space Station that's been created. And you got to see all of the, just the ins and outs of this International Space Station. They had like a little diagram or kind of like a realistic kind of presentation of what Mars would look like and what it would look like if we were there. It was just, it was mind-blowing. And some of the stats of this International Space Station, it's an international partnership, in case you're not, not aware. It's basically this whole home of astronauts from 15 different countries, five different space agencies, and they go to this International Space Station that's in orbit around the Earth, and it orbits all around the Earth, and the astronauts just go there, and all these different nations kind of communicating with one another and working with one another to build it. It was, if I'm not mistaken, $150 billion just to build it. Um, it's just this vast facility there. And it operates all around the world, and it's in its orbits around the world, and it's this huge station there, and it, to maintain it, it's like 2 to $3 billion a year. It's, it's, it's pretty significant. And in this video, where they showed not only that, but also how one day this, this small step of building this space station is just another small step to eventually maybe get us to Mars, so we can actually have like now a checkpoint so we can refill and get to Mars and you know, there are other places in the galaxy. And it was just this vast presentation. We were just amazed at just how mind-blowing just outer space is and how the galaxies and just one small galaxy among billions of galaxies, it's just mind-blowing to see all of this. And then it got me thinking afterwards, Francie and I were talking, like, this was pretty amazing. Like, the amount of money, the amount of time. I mean, we've been on this world, I mean, debatably 6,000 to 20,000 years and we're just now scratching the surface of seeing how we can possibly, eventually, in the future, hopefully see what's beyond Earth. It's like it's, we're just barely scratching the surface here to see all of the mind-blowing reality of the world that God has created. And it just blew my mind. You have the most brilliant minds in the planet Earth, 
and we're just now here. <laughs> like, like, do you imagine how vast God is that scientists can barely keep up with just where we're living, let alone getting beyond Earth, just to even get to Mars? We're still in the same galaxy. It just, it just blows my mind the amount of time, and we're barely scratching the surface. And as these scientists are working hard, it's, it's amazing work. But if only they knew what we knew. You think of Job chapter 11, verse 7. He says, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? If only they realize how vast and great God is. It's certainly not wrong to explore these things. I mean, it's, it's, it's cool. I hope they keep doing it. They will keep doing it. But you can sit and watch, study, learn, experiment, explore, and discover, and still never truly understand. You can come up with all of the greatest scientific discoveries. You can learn all that you can learn. You can go into outer space, and you can still never truly understand. To be clear, we should not be Christians who, who close our eyes and ears from science and from space or whatever you have. But we can actually learn more about these things, if you thought about it. That we can actually view those things, understand from those discoveries, and as Christians, we can actually learn more because we understand the source. You get what I'm saying? Is that you can hear the same message and see the same discoveries, but for the believer who has and is looking through the lens of God, through scripture, we can actually have a greater understanding of these marvelous truths that are just in nature. We can learn more because we learn them through the right lens. So we love wisdom. When you see all of the intricacies of the world, this is God's wisdom at work. We love wisdom. Hear me on that. But even more, Paul loves wisdom. Paul preaches wisdom. And even from our context here, Paul said last week we learned that he he determined to know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. He loved the message of wisdom. But yet now, in, in our passage, there were still some who understood that very fundamental truth of God. They understood that fundamental truth of Christ and Christ crucified. And yet there were some, even in the church, who were opposing that message and opposing Paul. People who claimed to love wisdom, claimed to love knowledge, and yet opposed this message from Paul. And why was that? They were not necessarily opposing it outright, although some were, but they were opposing it by saying that this message you preach, it's not enough. Yes, I I get Christ and Christ crucified. I get that. But they were claiming how how weak it was, that that's what you're preaching? You you travel all this way, going through all those ships, and, and that's your message? They were saying, in a sense, this message you're bringing lacked profundity. It's not, it's not substantial. They were well-versed with worldly wisdom, but yet this message was not enough. What I think the danger for the church, even today, is not just the, the blatant false doctrine, but it's the doctrine that's smixed and stood side with side with, you know, other kind of worldly wi- wisdom. That, you know, there, there, there's Christianity. They know it is Christian, yeah, because they talked about God and they, they acknowledged Christ. Yeah, but, but they also brought in this, other outside wisdom. Now, it doesn't mean we don't get wisdom from the text from Scripture. We, I'm not saying that. But what's happening is you see godly wisdom, but now that's not enough. It's now accompanied with secular thoughts and ideologies. Well, this person said this. This is actually in science, and this actually supports it because this is how the brain works. And this, 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 this. They put all this together, and it's accompanied with godly wisdom with something else. It's Christ plus something else. It looks safe because they did mention God. God's in it. They do allude to God. But yet, when you look at the content, it is not explicit or even stemming from truth of Scripture. And that's dangerous for the church. And so Paul realizes that, 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 that warning in the church. He realizes that caution, and he's speaking from the heart of that because he realizes that they know that they love wisdom, 
And Paul knows you love wisdom, you love the things of God, but yet you're still hungering for something on top of God's wisdom. God's word is not enough. We know to stay away from horoscopes and Ouija boards, right? That's not the issue, but it's when you get God's wisdom with something else. In some cases, the reason why that happens in churches and for Christians is because in some cases, the word of God through the spirit of God has truly not penetrated their heart. The message of Christ crucified has not really been laid upon the soul. They know it, but it has, they have not known it in the demonstration and power of the spirit. You get me? They know that message, but you can know it all you want. But unless the spirit in demonstration of power moves upon the soul to not just know this message, but to know this message then you will never truly know it. So in some cases, it's because the reason why Christ and Christ crucified is not sufficient is because the person has not really known Christ and Christ crucified. In other cases, it's because just ignorance. And not in just an offensive way, just ignorance. I mean, he sounds smart. He brings up the Bible. He opens the Bible. He talks about God. And yet there's other stuff that's just seeping in secretly. And it's just ignorance because lack of knowledge. Now, again, Paul realizes the reality that that, that true wisdom of it being unattractive to the human ear, that true wisdom is unattractive to the human ear. And he begins to address that issue. Let's look now at our passage in chapter chapter 2, verse 6. We're going to read our passage and going to go from there. Verse 6. Yet... We do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the spirit. For the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. Now, if we received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, Yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Father, we do ask that you would, by your spirit, open our eyes to see marvelous things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you believe this? Do you believe the words here? Isn't it fascinating how you can wholeheartedly Believe and trust in this. And someone lived the same experience you lived, have a completely different outlook and a completely different approach to this word. Why is it that so many people are are saying that they want truth, they want wisdom, they just want to know, they seek it and they search for it, and yet they do not find God? How is it that we live in a world that claims to love truth, want the facts, want even science, want the truth, and yet they still reject God? How can that happen? I think it's important for us to understand is that Paul is laying out for us two two fundamental truths about God's wisdom in this passage. Two fundamental truths about God's wisdom in this passage. And he begins to answer that. And he addresses the need and the heart of the Christian who wants wisdom, but what role does wisdom play in our lives? And why is it that some can hear this message of wisdom and still hate it? 
two fundamental truths about God's wisdom in this passage. The first truth is that man is unable to understand God's wisdom. It's basic, but it's true. Man is unable to understand God's wisdom. And this is because God's wisdom is not a universal wisdom per se. It's not a universal wisdom. It's not like general revelation that we speak of, which speak uh, general revelation speaking of the, the skies, of creation, of life, and of order, of beauty. Like all these things you look up in the heavens, right? That's just general revelation that, that anybody can look and see and, and understand and observe. But it's not the same as wisdom because it can't be generally or naturally understood. In other words, God's wisdom is not something that the natural human mind or eye can see and understand in and of itself. He can't just look at God's wisdom and say, I understand it in natural man's capacity because he's a natural man. Man cannot understand God's wisdom. In order for us to rightly understand the, the thrust of this passage now, I want to make sure that a couple terms that Paul uses are clear in your minds. Because if we understand these two terms that he's using here that I want to highlight, if we understand what Paul is saying with these two terms, I think the rest of the passage will fall in line. These terms that Paul uses, they're often misunderstood and therefore misapplied. But if we get this right, the rest will follow. So hear me on this. Paul says that he speaks wisdom, but not amongst everyone. So he's saying here, I do speak wisdom, but not amongst everyone. Look at verse 6 again. We do speak wisdom among those who? Who are mature. Among those who are mature. So let's ask, who are the mature amongst whom Paul speaks this wisdom? Who are the mature? In order to answer that, let's next ask, What is Paul speaking to these mature individuals? What is he speaking to these mature individuals? Wisdom, right? We do speak wisdom, right? He's speaking to them wisdom. Now, is this wisdom that Paul is speaking to these mature individuals, do you think, initial glance, is this wisdom that's of the world that he's speaking to them? I think we would outright say no. Even remember last week, he already debunked the world's wisdom, right? And even if you go back to chapter 1, verse 20, he says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? We know Paul is not speaking the wisdom of the world, but yet he's speaking some kind of wisdom. It is the wisdom of God. He's speaking wisdom, but it's the wisdom of God. And wisdom begins where with God? How can we begin to know wisdom with God? I want to answer that by looking at what even some of the Old Testament prophets have said about this wisdom. In Isaiah chapter 11, foreshadowing the Messiah to come, Isaiah says, Then a shoot, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. I mean, just think about the call of the Old Testament. Even look at Proverbs when it's saying here, young man, young man, seek wisdom. Wisdom is calling out for you. Seek this wisdom. Know this wisdom. And how can we know this wisdom? In the words of Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is what? Fear of the Lord, right? But now we see in the Old Testament, the Bible saying here, the spirit of wisdom is going to rest upon this one who is coming. And who is this one who is coming? It is Christ. It is Christ who is coming. He is that wisdom. Christ is wisdom. That's why you look at in our chapter, go back one chapter, chapter one. When Paul's speaking now, he's speaking of this, the same Christ. He says in verse 30 of chapter one, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who what? Who became to us wisdom from God. He became to us wisdom from God. You're in Christ who became this wisdom. Christ is the embodiment of this wisdom. He is wisdom. If you want to know wisdom, you know Christ. You cannot know the fear of the Lord if you do not know Christ. For New Testament Christians, us, the entryway of wisdom is Christ. He is the one who became to us wisdom from God. That's why Christ can say, come unto me. Now he's offering now, come unto me. You want to know true wisdom, true life? Come unto me and I will give you rest. Take your burdens upon me. My yoke is easy. My burdens are light. Come unto me. I am this wisdom. I am life. 
And so now Paul is speaking to the mature wisdom from God. And what is this wisdom? The wisdom of God that centers upon Christ. So Paul is saying here, I do speak to you wisdom, but I speak to you this wisdom from God. And it centers upon the person and work of Christ. That's why I determined to know nothing among you except what? Christ and Christ crucified. So he's speaking now wisdom of God. This kind of wisdom, he's speaking amongst the mature. So now let's ask again, who are these mature ones to whom Paul is speaking? At first glance, I think we would think the the spiritually mature. Right now he's saying, okay, now to the mature, those who, who are up in the faith, I speak wisdom. But that's not the objective that Paul has in mind. And keep in mind, so far in the context of the book, Paul has, has, has never sought to delineate the spiritually mature from the spiritually weak. Right? He's never been to say, okay, they're, they're somewhat up there, and this one, he's, he's further advanced. He's more mature in Christ. He's never really made any delineation between the, the spiritually weak and spiritually more mature. Rather, he's delineated two extremes of the foolishness of the world and the foolishness or the, the foolishness of the world and the wisdom of God, right? He, time and time, he's been contrasting two things, the foolishness of the world and the wisdom of God. He's been essentially contrasting the world with truth, God with the sinfulness of man. He's been making that delineation between the sinfulness of world, the, the, the flesh of the world, and things of God. And so now he's not only contrasting the content of these two things, but now he's contrasting the audience of these two things. So just like you, the, 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 those who are of the world, they're going to want the foolishness of the world, right? They're going to want these, these sinful things. But those who are mature, in other words, those who are in Christ, are going to go after the wisdom of God. So naturally, he speaks amongst the mature Christ, the wisdom of God. The word mature here, it can mean perfect or complete. You think of James 1, that God gives us trials so that you would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It can have that meaning of being perfect or matured or kind of perfected. But it can also refer to a person who has full membership in a group. One who is fully initiated. That this idea of mature is not only just maturing like an advancement, but one who is fully a part of a group who has membership. The author of Hebrews uses it this way in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, when it's speaking of the sacrifice of Christ and what impact it has upon the body of Christ. The author of Hebrews says, for by one offering, speaking of Christ's death and resurrection, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That by Christ's death, by one time, he has matured or completely initiated us to this group us into the body of Christ by his sacrifice, that we are completely, in one sense, matured to this understanding of Christ. This is the same people that Paul's talking about in, in our chapter in verse 15 when he contrasts the spiritual man to the natural man. That Paul here is saying here, the mature are those who are fully a part of this gospel-centered truth. To these mature people, I speak wisdom. The mature in this context are those who understand the message of the cross, namely as the wisdom of God, and they embrace it in faith. These are the mature he's speaking to. He's speaking wisdom from God to those who are matured, who understand this message and and cling to it in faith. True believers are the only ones to whom the gospel can be wisdom. Amen? That's to, to those who are saved, that is the only group of people who look at the message of the cross and we see that is the marvelous wisdom of God that he would save a sinful man and draw man to himself by sending his son, flesh, fully God, fully man, and bearing the wrath of God, saving sinful man from burning in hell eternity under his judgment. That's only the wisdom of God that can save man. So those who are saved look at that message and they say that is just the marvelous, magnificent wisdom of God. But the world says, sees that, and it's like, eh. Or they say, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was baptized at camp. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, that's wise to me. Yeah. But it has no effect because there's no spirit demonstrating its power in their life. So he's speaking this wisdom to those who are mature, to true believers. That's not to say we still speak wisdom to the world. Amen and amen. 
Paul himself, he proclaimed this message of wisdom to the world. But obviously it has its effect upon whom? Whom the Spirit opens their eyes to see this truth and to be changed by this truth. He still speaks it, and we ought to still speak this message of God's wisdom in the person and work of Christ. We speak this night and day. We speak this and we cling to it, and we proclaim it, and we announce it. But we trust the Spirit's work. But for now, Paul's saying here, for this body of believers now, we do speak wisdom. But you must understand, believers, what is true wisdom and where does it begin? Because they're tempted to look at other influential teachers who are combining wisdom with other worldly wisdom. And so Paul is addressing that fact. Now, because, now here's the rub. Because all that is true, again, man, natural man, is unable to understand God's wisdom. Because that's true, natural man is unable to understand God's wisdom. And that's what he explains at the end of verse 6. A wisdom, however, that's not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away. This wisdom the world does not know. They, they, they don't know it. Not even the rulers of this age, not even the, the noble of this age. They do not understand this wisdom in Christ. In verse 8, he says that none of the rulers of this age have even understood it. There's never been a time in the past, nor in the present, nor will there be in the future where you see rulers of this age coming to know this wisdom in their natural manhood. They can't. And why don't they understand God's wisdom? Why don't they understand it? Because it's hidden from their eyes. It's hidden from their eyes. In verse 7, he says, we speak God's wisdom. How? How is he speaking God's wisdom? In a mystery. It's in mystery. He's speaking it in a mystery, this hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The reason why they don't understand it, he's speaking it, but it's in mystery. It doesn't mean it's mystery in the sense that it's strange, but it's mystery in the sense that it's secret. That God has intentionally held the secret, held secret these truths from the natural man. That natural man cannot understand them in his own capacity as a natural man. That flesh cannot understand spiritual truths. And that's been Paul's theme, not only in this book, but in other books. It must be the spirit of God that impresses upon the soul to open the eyes to see spiritual truths. And so this secret is, this message is is, is shared in mystery because it is secret. It is hidden. It's almost in the sense that the world is, if you ever seen someone with a VR, the virtual reality headsets that are coming out more popular, and if you ever watch someone who has the headset on, it's hilarious. <laughs> Especially it's my favorites when they like hit, hit a wall or something like that or fall over something. Okay, that shouldn't be my favorite, but it's, it's, it's entertaining. But these virtual reality headsets, it's almost since like you, you see them and you realize why they're doing the things they're doing. You don't see what they see right? But you see the effects. You see why they're, they're swinging or punching. You see why they're running. You see why they're like waving, bobbing back and forth. You see why they're doing that, but we don't really see what they're seeing. Now, in a real way, every illustration obviously falls short, but in a real way, it's almost like the world does not understand the things that we're doing, the things that we say. They, they see it, right? The world sees it. They, they, they hear this message, but they don't understand it because they don't have eyes to see, and so this message of the truth, it, Paul says it's, it's spoken in mystery, that it's a secret. It's hidden from the eyes of the natural man, that they don't understand. They may see the effects of some things. They may see the echoes of some words and some preachings and some teachings, but it never really hits home because they cannot see. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. When he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Furthermore, they don't understand because this message of wisdom, that godly wisdom, is found where? In Christ. And found in Christ, whom they have rejected. And because it's found in Christ, what do they do when God's wisdom was revealed before their eyes? They crucified him. This is wisdom. That's wisdom. Take him out. That's not wisdom. They rejected it. They crucified him. That's why in verse 8, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age have understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
If they did understand wisdom, they would not have crucified Christ. But instead, when wisdom came in their natural mind, their natural capacity with natural fleshly eyes, they saw it and spurned it. They hated it because they didn't have spiritual eyes to see. I'm sure this is no news to you, but Christianity is being more labeled more and more as a hostile religion filled with hate speech. Now, I feel like it's always heated and used, you know, almost kind of to scare the church a little bit. But really, church, that's not new, that's not new news. <laughs> I mean, we know this, right? We know that Christianity has always been hostile, right? The, the, the world's always saw us as hostile. The world's always hated the message. The world's always hated Christians. Jesus said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you, right? This is not new news, but we see the reason why is that because they don't have eyes to see, they hate us just like they hated Christ. That this is not new, new teaching, but also reminds us that Christianity here is not a popular message for us, you realize that we're not going to be popular when you cling to these things oftentimes. This doesn't boost your, your, your medals. This doesn't boost your popularity. But take heart, believer. You're in good company. You're in good company. The wicked have never understood the ways of God. And Paul begins to illustrate that again in verse 9 for us. Just like they crucified him, look at, look at what it's written. Verse 9, but just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered in the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So now, Paul, if you notice, it's indented in your Bible, probably most of your Bibles, this passage or in caps or something to, to differentiate between the other verses in that passage. Because Paul here, is, he's quoting scripture here. The bulk of it, the heart of it is coming from Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. But really, Paul here, he's not quoting it word for word, if you look at that. But he's really, what he's doing, he's, he's taking together some core truths taught in the Old Testament. And he's bringing them here and anchoring there in, in Isaiah chapter 64. And he's using it for us as an illustration to explain how man has never understood God's truths in and of themselves. And he uses Isaiah 64, verse 4. In that chapter, within the context, Isaiah here, he's beseeching God to reveal himself. He's he's saying to God, reveal yourself so that the adversaries can see who you are and they will know your name and they will serve you. Isaiah is beseeching God, would you just reveal your glory for them? Let them see. But yet, the point is that man has never seen and never understood God's power in and of themselves. So Paul's using this, this verse as an illustration to echo the Old Testament teaching that the natural mind cannot penetrate into the wisdom of God. Man cannot understand it. He's showing how the natural man has not seen God at any point in his own efforts, but rather it is prepared for those who love him. That God has reserved his glory, his magnificent wisdom for those who love him, for those whom he called out. So the believer cannot see it or fathom it. They cannot understand these truths. And that's why they murdered Jesus instead of worshiping him. They hated that wisdom. That man is unable to understand God's wisdom. Now the second truth I want us to grasp from this text is it's bridging from that first truth. Hear me, man is unable to understand God's wisdom. Now the second truth, man is unable to understand God's wisdom apart from the Holy Spirit. That's key. Apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from the Holy Spirit. This is clearly displayed in this text because now Paul here is moving toward the audience of Christians in verse 10. If you look at the beginning, for to us, to whom? To us believers, God revealed them through the Spirit. So why is it that one, a man, a natural man can begin to understand the wisdom of God? Because it's revealed to that natural man. That natural man is changed and born again to understand them how? Through the Spirit. Now here in these next few verses, Paul gives us a a rich depiction of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and God's wisdom. And as one person put it, then he's describing here how the, the, the Holy Spirit is the Trinity's agent of communication. The, Trin- the Holy Spirit is the Trinity's agent in communication. 
And what I mean by that is that the, the Holy Spirit is the one, the person whom the, whom the Trinity has chosen to convey, to communicate divine truths to the souls of men so that we not only understand them, but we know them and apply them in a real way that the natural man cannot. And what I think this should do for you, believer, is it should really get you to have a deeper appreciation for the person, the Holy Spirit. To understand how is God working in your life so that you can understand his glories fundamentally in his person of Christ, but also truly in experience. That God uses the Holy Spirit to impress upon your soul magnificent truths of his glory so that you behold them like never before and are changed like never before. You must understand the beauty and the workings of the Holy Spirit so that you can appreciate how God is revealing himself to you. So let's look at just briefly three ways that you can know, or three ways in which the Holy Spirit is working so that you can know this wisdom. The first way here is that the Holy Spirit is revealing. In other words, we can say he's the agent of revelation. That the Holy Spirit is revealing, you see in verses 10 through 11. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man, which is in him. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. That only he reveals truth. The spirit is the one who reveals truth. And because truth comes from whom? From God, right? So who knows the will of God, but God himself, right? Who knows the will of God, but God himself? Who knows the mind of God and the workings of God, but God himself. So if that's true, if God is the one who knows his mind, who knows his will, who knows his workings, who is going to convey these deep things of God? God in his spirit. So for to us, God revealed them through his spirit. That's the point he's making in verse 11. He gives the uh, earthly comparison for us. Like who knows the spirit of a man better than the man, the man's thoughts himself, right? Like, who, who knows you better than the thoughts that are in you? Like, I can see your actions. I can see, hear what you say. But even more, the thoughts that are deep inside your soul, no one knows except you and God. He's saying here that because that's true, just like the spirit of man knows himself better than anyone, the spirit of God knows the thoughts of God. This deep intricacies of, of Trinitarian theology here where there's distinction in personhood. This Holy Spirit is not God the Father or God the Son, but he's saying here, this is God himself, but yet in distinct personhood of the Spirit is revealing this truth so that you can understand these things. The God who searches even the deep things of God, he says, reveals to us this wisdom of God. Even think of spouses who've known each other for decades and lived together and married together for decades, and yet there's greater depths of knowledge that they have with one another as you live together with someone year after year. But even still, even though the spouse knows each other well, there's some deep thoughts in each spouse that maybe some don't understand deeply, which is why there's still conflict in marriage, right? We, we don't really understand. But even still, you see these deep intricacies, this understanding here that who can know a person better than his thoughts, so he's given this, this picture here that the spirit is the one who reveals. So where is this revelation of God's wisdom coming from? It's coming from, first, God, who is Holy Spirit. So not only is the Holy Spirit revealing, we're going to see secondly now, the Holy Spirit inspires. He's also the agent of inspiration, if you will. Because what is the purpose of this revelation of the spirit? What's the purpose of this revelation? If God is revealing himself to us as believers, if you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, he's revealed this truth to you because God the Spirit has opened your eyes. He's revealed it to you. Now, what's the purpose of this revelation that God wants for you? The purpose is, first we can say, is is clear understanding. Clear understanding. That it's not just some sort of mystical idea that like, okay, this person is filled with the Spirit said this, and this person filled with the Spirit said this. It's kind of conflicting, but we can kind of wish-wash. We get the basic truth here that, that there's some sub-truth in there, right? But that's not the purpose of it. It's clear understanding. Because Paul explains that we receive the Spirit of God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. 
I want to sit and rest on that for a second. The reason why he did this is so that you would, free, would know the things freely given to you by God. I really think we don't grasp that enough. God revealed himself so that you could understand the things that he has freely or graciously given to you. If we understood the deep things of God, I mean, don't we gloss over this so much sometimes? Is that if we understand these deep truths that God intended for you to understand this so you can understand all that he's bestowed upon you in Christ. Like time and time again, how much are New Testament authors trying to get us to believe, to believe and to cleave as believers the truth, the love of God, the magnificence of God, God's glory, all that's given to you as a believer, all that God has given to you. How much has Paul spent so much of his ink trying to see, do you understand all that God has given you, believer? Do you understand the spirit that's in you? Do you understand how it impacts your holiness? Do you understand the promises of God waiting for you? Do you understand the promises of God given to you now? How much do we not really soak in that? He gives this to you so you may know these things. And I really think that if we did know these things, if we grow in these truths, you know what result I think it should have in us, that as we do cling to these things and learn these things, I think we would wear wisdom well. And what do I mean by that? That if we understand this wisdom that God has revealed to us, given to us in Christ, that we should therefore wear this wisdom well. You hear me? That we, because this is true, that we should wear this wisdom well. In other words, it impacts our life and how others see us. One thing that stood out to me when I was thinking about this is in 1 Kings chapter 10, you think of Solomon, right? The greatest man, the wisest man who ever lived. And there's, there's one story with, with Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. Queen Sheba comes to Solomon. Now Solomon here is the wisest man. He's got gold. He's got riches. He's got all these things, right? And notice now Queen Sheba is now coming to him. Because Why? She's hearing of this man with wisdom, this man who has all this knowledge, and it's substantiated with all his wealth and all these things he has. And look what Queen Sheba does. She comes to hear from this man, that this woman from a pagan nation, pagan gods, is coming to hear about this wisdom that she's heard about. Chapter 10, it says, Now when the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, right, She came to test him with difficult questions. Verse three, and Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king, which he did not explain to her, right? That's another thing, like God's wisdom. Again, it's not this summer secret, secret, secret knowledge you got to tap into different levels. But no, he he displayed God's wisdom for her. He didn't hide anything from her. He he, he spoke it all. Now, verse eight, now how, this is her response when she really tested him which was not uncommon in that culture. If you see a wise man, you would test him. Is this, is, is this wisdom true? She tested him. And now verse eight, how blessed are you men? How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom? She comes and tests this man, Solomon. And now her response is, it's real. Like this is legit. Like how blessed are you and all your people? In verse nine, blessed be now, she says, blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh, your God, who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. You see this response here. This woman now who heard of this wisdom did not know anything about this true Yahweh. She came and heard this wisdom because this wisdom was well displayed and she wanted to see, okay, what is this wisdom? Now, I don't want to stretch this application from this text too far, but I do think there's something to be said, excuse me, about how wisdom ought to have an effect on our life. That when people see God's wisdom at work in our life, that our life should change. The fruit of our life should manifest. And people will see a changed life. And they will see, wait, what is this life you're living? Why do you live like this? You think of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, right? It's a be ready to give an account for anyone who asks about the hope that lies within you. When people see, why do you live the life you live? How can you smile and have joy through the greatest hardship in your life? What is this fruit? What is this fruits of wisdom that they're seeing here? They won't put it that way, but they're going to see there's something different. That you, 
understanding all that God has freely given to you, you have a changed life, a different disposition, different speech, different goals, different desires, different perspectives. Like, you're weird. <laughs> like, they're, not, they're always going to love it, right? The world's still going to hate it to some degree, but there are going to be some who want to give, wait, give an account. Why are you different? I think wisdom should have that effect on us. As we have known this wisdom of God in Christ, that the world should see, they may not understand it, but they should see something different. So like Colossians chapter four as well, it speaks of this, like walk with wisdom with outsiders. We're to walk with wisdom with outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. That that should be the fruit that this has upon us, that we would truly be salt and light. That Paul's saying here, the purpose here is that you could freely understand these things. So our wisdom should be worn well. We should know the things freely given to us by God. Man, beloved, just think. If God delivered up his son, he certainly will graciously give us all things in him. You hear that? I know we hear that, but do you hear that? If God gave his son, he gave his son for you, will he not graciously, freely give you all things? How much do you contemplate that? That this wisdom that God has displayed, he freely gives it to you. Wear that wisdom well. God is liberal in his love and liberal in his gifts. He holds back nothing from his beloved. And although this is spiritually inherited, how can we know this? How can we know this wisdom? How? By the spirit, right? I think we've established that. By the spirit. But still, how can we know this? By the spirit. Is it through mystically? Do I wait for some sort of moving of the spirit? Do I set a fleece outside and wait for some movement of the spirit? Do I need to go to some Christianized tarot reader to tell me what I do next? How can I know these things? By the spirit. We know it's by the spirit. But how can we know these things? Look at verse 13. Because he says, these things, the wisdom, which we also speak. Now, Paul, now he's speaking of his own experience here as an apostle. And he's relaying this wisdom how? In words. In words. In other words, God's words. He's relaying this wisdom through inspiration. That he's saying here, I'm speaking. These things we speak not in words in verse 13, taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Now, if you notice in, in, your, in your verse chapter or verse 13, the editors of your Bible probably supplied, if you have in Asby, spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, right? But the reason why it's italicized, if you have a New American Standard, is because the, the original, in the Greek, it reads that he, these things taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. So it's kind of obscure to one degree. Like, these things I'm speaking to you, Paul's speaking them how? In words, but how is he doing it? Combining spiritual with spiritual. I think the editors got it right. This thing is combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Because Paul here is giving clarity. He said, I'm, I'm giving you this wisdom and I'm getting it how? Not from the world's wisdom, from God's wisdom. And how am I giving to you through words? And how am I doing that? I'm combining spiritual thoughts from God and I'm conveying them in words. But these are not just human words and worldly wisdom words, but they are spiritual words. I'm combining spiritual thoughts from God with spiritual words so that you can understand them. That this wisdom from God is coming from God in words, but inspired words. That Paul is speaking of his own experience as an apostle. How am I giving you this wisdom, Corinth? I'm giving it to you, combining the spiritual things of God with spiritual words. Yes, I'm writing them, but these are not my words only. These are dual inspiration. This is the word of God. So how do we understand this wisdom and grow in this wisdom? It's by understanding the spiritual things of God. Not in some sort of mystical knowledge, but in the written word of God. He's combining spiritual with spiritual. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, when Peter's speaking, he says, Just as also our beloved brother Paul, 
according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. That he understands these are words of wisdom given from God. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 26, that the, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, what will this Holy Spirit do? What will this helper do? He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. And Jesus in 14, 26 is speaking to whom? The apostles, many of whom would go and write scripture. So how are they going to bring to remembrance all these things? How is God going to convey this wisdom? It is through the person, the Holy Spirit. He's going to bring to remembrance these things to you. That the Spirit is not only revealing, but the Spirit is inspiring so that you can understand these truths that are fully given to you by God. But that's not enough. Because not only is that happening, but now the Holy Spirit is illumining Thirdly, the Holy Spirit illumines. He's the agent of illumination. Because why doesn't the believer understand, why doesn't the unbeliever understand these truths that we've been talking about? Because they're spiritually appraised. Verse 14. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. The natural man sees the things of God as foolishness. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. That a natural man, one who does not have the spirit of God, one who has not been born again, cannot truly understand the things of God because they're spiritually appraised. He says that they're not unable to. In other words, they can't. This is why the scribes who knew the law, they knew all that they could tell you, they could quote passages of the Old Testament but they did not understand or believe that Jesus was the Christ. They missed the whole point. How could a scribe, a Pharisee, who knew the Old Testament in and out, miss the main point? Because they're spiritually appraised. They were natural. They did not understand the things of God because they didn't have the Spirit of God to open their eyes. Martin Luther said that the Bible cannot be understood simply by study or talent. Right? You could study and you can have talent all you, all you want. But he says you must count only on the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's why one person can hear this message and it does nothing. It's foolishness to them because the Spirit has not opened their eyes. It's still mystery to them. I remember when I was counseling with an ex-military guy, um, not at this church, and he was... He was on the brink, it almost seemed like. And one thing he asked, he was like, you know, I just don't understand. Like when people talk about, like, I understand what you're saying, this message, but like, I I don't know if I even have that love for God. Like I hear people talking about this love for God and and they seem like it's all consuming them. I, I just don't understand. I don't have that. I think that's the point. That you, you see it and you understand it, but it's like that true love for God, where does that come from? But from God himself, that God has to open that heart to see the beauty of Christ so they love this God truly. Just like a physically blind man can't see the sun, a spiritually blind man can't see the sun. It has to be opened. But when God regenerates a dead soul, when God does that work, when God takes the natural man, the one who was born in the flesh, and he makes it born again, born of the spirit, that soul now reveals and see Christ. The spirit of God now is applying the work of Christ to that soul. And now that soul can see the beauty of God's wisdom and now just relish it and love it and cling to it and be changed by it. And even more, that mind now is illumined to understand the deep things of God in deeper ways because the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit has illumined now their minds to understand these truths. In other words, in verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. That the believer has the mind of Christ. So we can appraise all things, but we're appraised by knowing, he says in verse 15, that you have the mind of Christ. And I love how he uses another quote there from the Old Testament from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13 in verse 16. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him. Right, again, he's, he's pointing back to Isaiah, but in that context of Isaiah, the prophet is speaking of God's thoughts, of God's minds. You ever think about who is, can know the mind of God? Who can know the deep workings of God? Who can know all of that? And Isaiah is is obviously pointing out, no one. 
But now Paul is using that verse to apply to the mind of Christ. As believers now, you have the mind of Christ. So who can instruct you in that sense? Who can, know, who can appraise you? Because you have the mind of Christ. Then now you have a renewed mind, a sound mind, an open mind to the things of God like you didn't before. And you have to understand, believer, as a promise to you given by God, that you now have the mind of Christ. That you can appraise things rightly. You can examine things rightly. That you can now welcome wisdom. That doesn't mean, obviously, you have perfect understanding. You still have to study. You still have to to, to work to understand these things. But you now have the capacity to now study and understand because you're no longer a natural man. You have the mind of Christ. Then man cannot understand the wisdom of God apart from the spirit of God. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way, that regeneration is, regeneration, he's speaking of regeneration, it's all pervasive as depravity. In other words, being born again, it's all pervasive as depravity. You think about depravity, before you're in Christ, depravity wreaked the soul. We weren't as bad as we could be, but depra- sinful depravity affected every aspect, the mind, our thoughts, our deeds, our, our words. Depravity just soaked every aspect of the man. But now regeneration has its all-encompassing effect that now in Christ, having the mind of Christ, it's all pervasive, affecting the parts of the Christian's mind, how you think, how you prioritize, how you speak, how you walk, how you love, how you desire. It's now having an all-encompassing um, impact upon the believer because now, believer, you have the mind of Christ. You can now think rightly. You can now look at your situation, your trials, your circumstances, your blessings, and you have a different outlook on them, and you can rightly interpret them because now you've been given a mind by God himself to rightly appraise these things. As believers, you've been gifted the mind of Christ. Therefore, you have no need for any other wisdom. That's why in 1 John chapter 2, verse 26, he's saying you have the anointing, in other words, the Holy Spirit, and you have no need for anyone to teach you anything. In other words, he's saying you have no need for other outside wisdom, no need for other wisdom of man. You have everything because you have the anointing, the Holy Spirit, and you have no need for, to find truth apart from God's word. You can rightly assess mind, assess life, excuse me. And think about how having the mind of Christ is so intricately connected with understanding God's plan for salvation. Because now you having the mind of Christ, you now, with God's mind, have it your prime desire and your prime objective is to give God glory in all things. Why? Because the Spirit seeks to give glory to God in all things. So you having the mind of Christ, you seek to give glory to God. That desire to give God's glory in your life does not come naturally. It comes from God. That you have a desire, believer, to give God glory in all that you do because you have a mind of Christ. You now see the beauty of Christ crucified, and that's impacted your life and changed your life. And now your desire, believer, should be to have that same message proclaimed elsewhere because you have the mind of Christ. It's a gift. Even more, you share God's perspective now of having humility, godliness, patience, because you have the mind of Christ. Again, that doesn't mean you'll be perfect in all these things, but now you can rightly assess life and you have an ability to see and to discern because you have the mind of Christ. And now you perceive the things freely given to you and you can cherish them and you can welcome them because you've been given the mind of Christ. So when you face trials, when you face tribulations, how is it that a believer can see this this horrible thing that's happened to them, but yet have a different outlook than an unbeliever because you have the mind of Christ and you can renew your mind. Now, because you have the mind of Christ, we must renew our mind. If your mind, if you have the mind of Christ, right? Paul is also saying that you should also be renewing your mind continually in this mind of Christ because constantly your mind is going to be tempted to fall astray. But now you have the mind of Christ. You have the ability, the capacity to understand spiritual things and be renewed by them. So we should cherish these things as a gift of God. Because now, because the mind of Christ, you can think differently. You can love differently. You can cherish differently. That's why Job, when all the catastrophes hit his home, that's why Job could say, yet though he slay me, yet will I trust him. But yet his wife can say, Job, 
curse God and die. The mind of Christ has its impact upon the believer because now you not only have the ability to rightly see and assess and examine, but the ability to rightly choose and to speak and to live because it's all-encompassing change that God has given to you in Christ, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You should love what God has given you. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness and a sound and a right mind. So you need nothing else. Do you believe that? Do you believe God's word is enough? Do you believe his spirit is sufficient? Do you really believe that? You have the mind of Christ. What else do we need? So because that's true, we can live with wisdom and unity with one another and also clinging to only God's wisdom alone. Let's pray. Our God, we do give you thanks for this mind that you've given to us in Christ, that we are changed, we are not our own. And Lord, I pray that you would work your work in us so that we would be those who love wisdom but cling to wisdom and renew our minds in that very wisdom. We ask God for your help by the power of your spirit who illumines us so that we would understand these things because you've gifted them to us in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.